Let us pray. Lord, it is true, as we sang a moment ago, that we need you. Every hour, we need you. We need you now, Lord. I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open my mouth to speak your word and open our ears to hear it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It is a strange thing when a book of the Bible it generates as much interest in Hollywood as it does in the church. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, well, strange is just what you've got to expect. Now, Hollywood is fascinated by Revelation. Not the book per se, but certainly its theme of apocalyptic battles and world-ending events. And it seems that this interest just gets stronger every decade. Up through the 1980s, film studios produced approximately 25 movies about apocalyptic disasters. In the 1990s alone, 56 apocalyptic films were released. More than 60 appeared the decade after that, and even more in the 2010s. So it seems producers and audiences alike just can't get enough of the apocalypse. And it's true for Christians as well. You remember the Left Behind series? Those books sold 80 million copies. And before that, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, that was another 15 million. And every year, Christians are finding new fulfillments of prophecies of revelation. Every year it seems there's a new candidate for the mark of the beast referred to in Revelation chapter 13. Now, Hal Lindsey thought it would be a mandated national ID card system. Now, other candidates have included credit cards, um, tattoos, ATM pin numbers, uh, subdermal microchip implants, about a year and a half ago, the Chief Justice of South Africa caused a, quite a stir when he warned everyone that anyone who received a COVID vaccination may very well be taking on themselves the mark of the beast. And of course, not all Christians are quite so enthused by revelation. Take us Anglicans, for instance. We are dignified Christians. We value moderation and restraint. We like to do things decently and in good order. So we're not at all sure what to do with this strange book and all its bizarre and apocalyptic symbols. And as a result, we just, we just kind of push that aside. We don't pay much attention to Revelation. And that's a shame because while Revelation is not meant to be a source for endless wild speculations, while Revelation is not some big system of complex conspiratorial codes that have to be understood, all that is the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul warned his young protege Timothy to avoid. At the same time, Revelation is not meant to be ignored. There is a good reason that the church chose to include this as the final book of the canon of scripture, the crowning finale of the entire Bible. 
of all the books in the New Testament, there is none by far that has as many allusions, as many references, as many rich images from the Old Testament as this book. Revelation is, as one scholar put it, the most Old Testamentist of all New Testament books. Now, that's a hard thing to say, by the way. It's easy to read. It's hard to say. But Revelation is not just a summary of all these Old Testament scriptures wrapped up. It is also a breathtaking, vivid portrayal of the New Testament gospel of a crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. And above all, it is a personal and direct message, a word from the Spirit of God spoken to us, the church. It's a word about our present travails and our future hope. It's a word about the trials we must endure and a word of promise about how we will overcome. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we encounter a series of seven letters written to specific churches at a specific time, but with an enduring message for every church at every time. And each of these letters ends with the same admonition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I ask, do you have an ear? Are you willing and ready to listen, to hear what the Spirit is saying through this strange and wondrous book, what the Spirit is saying to the church. If so, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. And notice the opening words of Revelation 5, beginning in the first verse. Then I saw. That little phrase consists of only two words in the original language, kai idon, and I saw. And it's a phrase that you'll see again and again throughout the book. In fact, it occurs four times in this chapter alone, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 11. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. Now, this phrase, in many ways, gets you right to the heart of what Revelation is, because it's a series of visions given to John the seer, but not visions as we might imagine them. These aren't fanciful dreams. And these aren't just action-packed previews of some kind of weird, dystopian, apocalyptic future. What John is given in these visions is a window into the heavenly reality that exists behind earthly history. When you and I look at the world around us, all that we can see is space, matter, color, and form. We can see people live and die. We can watch as nations rise and fall. But John, John sees much more. For John, the veil of heaven is being pulled back. And he is peering into the spiritual dips, depths that exist behind the living and the dying and the rising and the falling. And what does John see now here? Well, he says that he sees a book, a scroll, a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. 
And then he sees a mighty angel that's crying out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And he sees that there is no one in heaven or on earth that is able to answer that cry. And then he says, and then I began to weep loudly because no one was found to open the scroll or to look into it. This is a very strong response. John doesn't get misty-eyed when he hears this. He doesn't shed a silent tear. John weeps loudly. He is overwhelmed with grief. His tears remind you of the tears of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 6, who drenches his bed with his weeping, of the tears that Jesus shed when he visited his friend Lazarus' grave, of the tears that Jeremiah the prophet speaks of in Jeremiah chapter 31, when he says, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted. John's grief is, you could say, grief of biblical proportions. And why not? Why shouldn't he weep? For even though he doesn't know yet the contents of this scroll that is sealed, that will not be revealed for several chapters. He does understand its significance. Contained within this scroll are not simply predictions about events to come. Contained in this scroll is the divine verdict on all of human history and the key to its final resolution. And if it can't be opened, then the world is doomed to continue to live out a senseless tragedy that can never and will never be resolved. Wrongs will never be righted. Wounds will never be healed. Wasted years will not be redeemed. And whatever hopes we may entertain of some kind of bright future of peace and justice will only ever remain wishful thinking. That is the fate of a world in which the scroll remains closed. That is why John weeps. But then, as his grief threatens to overtake him, all of a sudden he hears a voice, a voice of one of the 24 elders around the throne of God. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so, John looks again when he hears this voice. And what he sees here is, is very interesting. Because what John hears is an announcement about a conquering lion, a warrior king, mighty, descended from the throne of David. But when he looks, what he sees isn't a lion. What he sees is a lamb, and this is no ordinary lamb. This lamb has seven eyes. It sees all. From it, no secrets are hid. This lamb has seven horns. All power is given to it. No enemy can withstand it. But there is one crucial fact about this lamb that must have startled and shocked John even more than those seven eyes and seven horns. When he looks, he sees a lamb that appears as if it has been slain. This isn't just a lamb that's being brought up for sacrifice. 
This is a lamb that has already been slaughtered. And we shouldn't skip over too quickly just how surprising and shocking this sight must have been for John. For as one commentator says, what John hears is a lion, what he sees is a lamb. What he hears is strength, what he sees is weakness. What he hears is a conqueror, what he sees is the quintessential victim. If what John hears is life, what he sees is death. And yet, as strange as it seems, it is this one, this lion lamb, who is alone worthy to answer the angel's call. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. If he were only a lion, he would not be worthy. A lion could bring God's justice. A lion could put an end to the hatred and the greed and the violence that plague and stain our history. A lion could protect the innocent and wreak havoc upon the wicked. But the story of our lives isn't that simple, is it? You can't neatly divide up the wicked and the innocent. We need the strength of a lion. But if he were only a lion, none of us could withstand his vengeance. But this one isn't just a lion. He's also a lamb. He isn't only coming to put an end to the wicked. He has also taken their place. And so he steps forward steps forward up to the throne of God, his rightful place, and takes the scroll. And when he does, what happens? Well, when he does, all of a sudden, a celebration breaks out, the likes of which you cannot even fathom. John says that the four living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne fall down, and they begin to do something that they have not yet done in the book of Revelation. They begin to sing, worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then John looks again and he sees that they're not alone. Myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels, which is a fancy poetic way of saying far more than a hundred million of them begin to shout And then it's not just the creatures and the angels. Then all of a sudden, John hears what he says is the cry of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every angel, every man and woman and child, every bird of the sky and fish of the sea, even the dead, lend their voices to what becomes this thunderous song that is shaking the heavens. That's what John sees. That's his vision. The question is, what does that have to do with us? What can this vision of this heavenly liturgy with all its myriads of angels and its heart-wielding elders and its thunderous song, what does that have to do with us today? Here in Plano, Texas, this first Sunday of May, Well, remember what I said earlier. The book of Revelation is a series of visions, but these visions aren't just predictions of an apocalyptic future. They are a glimpse into what is taking place right now. 
in a realm that is yet lies beyond our vision, but is as real as the pew that you are sitting on right now. And it's a reality that we get to participate in every single week when we come to church. What do we do when we gather together? We begin with the liturgy of the word. We begin by hearing the word of God read and proclaimed. And what does that word tell us? Well, at most basic, it tells us the truth about ourselves. It tells us the truth that we've been avoiding. It tells us the truth that we have made a royal mess of things. That in the words of the 12-step program, our lives have become unmanageable. That's what we're doing, you know, when we confess our sins. We say that we have sinned against our creator in thought, word, and deed. And that doesn't mean that we've just made some mistakes, that we've made regrettable errors, that we're not as perfect as we could be. It's far more severe than that. It means that we've made a mess of our lives and that we are now unworthy, that none of us can redeem or resolve this mess we've made. In the older prayer book, the language of this confession was even stronger. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Now, people don't like that prayer now. It just sounds so pessimistic. That's just too melodramatic. But why shouldn't we bewail our sins? Isn't that exactly what John's doing when he weeps to see that none can answer the angel's cry? Isn't John bewailing the manifold sins and wickedness that have doomed human history? But thankfully, like John, when we confess, we aren't left in our grief. Because when we confess, all of a sudden we hear a word. And the priest stands up. And he speaks words of absolution. And in those words, what we're hearing is a word of comfort from the very throne of God. Weep no more. Behold, there is one who is conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll. And then when we hear those words, you look up. And what do you see behind the priest? You see a symbol of a lamb that was slain. And then, well, then we sing. Then we join our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. Do you ever think about that line of the liturgy? You know what it means? It means that when you sing, you're not just joining your voice with the choir that's up in the loft or the people in the pews around you. No, it means that when you sing, you are joining your voice with an angel chorus that is a hundred million members strong. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth will lend their praise and their voice to the lamb that was slain. All we're doing is adding our voice to the song. And our worship doesn't stop there. What do the angels say to the lamb in verse 12? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The greatest wonder and mystery of the worship that we engage in every week isn't that the lamb is worthy to receive these blessings. No, the greatest wonder is that he chooses out of love 
to share these gifts with us. When you and I come forward and we kneel at the rail and we receive bread and wine, we are receiving a gift from the Lamb, the gift of himself. And when he gives himself to us, what he is giving to us is everything that belongs to him. He shares it with us. To us, the weak, he gives his power. To us, the poor, he gives his wealth. We are foolish, and so he gives us his wisdom. We are frail, and so he lends his strength. We come to him naked and ashamed, and he clothes us in his own honor and glory. Friends, that's what we do when we come into this place. That is what we are joining into. The worship that we are engaged in right now did not begin with the processional hymn. There is a heavenly liturgy taking place and all we're doing is joining in. For the lion has conquered. The lamb that was slain is risen. The scroll can now be opened. So what shall we say? To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.